Welcome to the Envisioning BYU podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU addresses that highlight the university's institutional vision. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. John S. Tanner was academic vice president at BYU when he delivered this address titled, A Gospel Ground for Education, an academic credo to BYU graduate students at the Faith and Scholarship Symposium on February 16, 2005. I'm honored to speak to you tonight about the relationship between faith and scholarship, knowing that so many of you embody a seamless unity of these values in your own lives. When hearing of this topic, you likely envision a talk on the horizontal relationship between faith and scholarship, that is, how they complement or conflict with one another. However, I want to take a different tact. I want to address the vertical relationship between faith and scholarship, specifically how faith, or more broadly religious belief, undergirds and grounds education. So I've called my remarks a gospel ground for education. By a gospel ground for education, I mean the theological basis for education. I recognize that this is an an inherently abstract topic, about as appetizing as dry toast without butter. So I shall try to make my views more palatable by focusing on two familiar foundational instances in the Scriptures, the two great commandments in the New Testament— and the olive leaf revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants. The first allows me to comment on the broad Christian underpinning for education. The second, in the Doctrine and Covenants, allows me to consider the specifically Latter-day Saint basis for education. Both of these scriptural texts contain commandments. They express religious imperatives— The focus is intentional, for I believe that education is a religious duty. God expects us to use our minds to love Him and our neighbor. Since education is based on eternal imperatives, what follows is not just an analysis, but also an academic credo of sorts, a statement of what I believe the Lord expects of me as a believer. Hence my subtitle, An Academic Credo in which credo means, I believe. So let me first talk about the two great commandments. I believe that the mind is a divine gift, and that we are fashioned to love and serve God intelligently, as Thomas More says in Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons. He says, God made angels to show him splendor, as he made animals for innocence and plants for their simplicity, but man he made to serve him wittily in the tangle of his mind. This sentiment is very similar to what William Shakespeare has Hamlet say when he exclaims, Sure he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Now, fust means mold in us unused. Likewise, the Lord affirms the mind as a divine gift in his great charter of Christian discipleship, the so-called great commandments, 
to love God and neighbor. The first commandment explicitly sanctions the mind as a means of worship. It is telling that Jesus added mind when he reformulated Deuteronomy 6, 5, which Jews said every day. Uh, And he reformulated this as the first great commandment, adding mind. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Mind occurs in all three versions of this commandment in the Gospels, in the New Testament. What is more, mind also appears in similar formulations found in modern Revelation. There are at least ten more such instances in Latter-day Saint scriptures containing similar lists and all include mind. Now, let me draw some implications from this remarkable emphasis on mind by focusing on several words in the first commandment. First, mind, of course. As I've already stated, I believe the inclusion of mind is both deliberate and deeply significant. The first commandment dignifies the intellect as a vehicle with which to worship God and honor His creations. Some religious traditions disparage the intellect because of its potential for misuse. By contrast, the first commandment recognizes that the mind is fundamentally holy, on a par with the heart or the soul. Now, to be sure, there are spiritual dangers associated with the intellect, but these are perils from the the misuse of a good gift, not from any inherent danger or evil in the gift itself. To be learned is good, Jacob affirms, if they hearken. This gets it just right. The Lord expects scholars to hearken. Scholars are not exempt from obedience or meekness. At the same time, the Lord expects them and all of us to use our minds to love Him and to understand His creations. So that's the first word, mind. Second, love. We often think of loving God as something we do solely or mainly with our hearts and with our hands in service. The first commandment obligates us to love the Lord with our minds. What a powerful idea that the mind can be an instrument of love. I believe that God expects us to love Him thoughtfully, attentively, and studiously. We demonstrate our love for God by learning about Him and His creations. The first commandment reminds us that there is a relationship between learning and loving. To love with the mind describes my deepest experience as a learner, as a student, not only of the, of the sacred but of secular matters. For me, learning at its best is an intense form of loving, culminating in delight. Now, the word all. We are commanded to love God with all our minds. Given this injunction, I believe it's improper to segment our minds into hermetically sealed spheres such as sacred and secular, as if all truth were not ultimately one. To love God with all our minds means that our views on the academic disciplines must be informed by our discipleship. The first commandment calls us to intellectual wholeness or integrity. Now the words heart, soul, and strength. 
Similarly, the first commandment links the mind with other faculties, heart, soul, and strength. Like the emphasis on all, this list suggests an integrated approach to matters of the mind. It implies that the mind ought to be integrated with our other faculties. We are not simply a, a mind in a vat. We are embodied beings who are commanded to love God with the totality of our being. Now the word God. The first commandment focuses on loving God. What does it mean to bring our minds to the love of God? Does this enjoin us to study only religious subjects? I think not. Rather, I believe that the command to love God with our minds invites us to contemplate not only the Creator, but His wondrous creations. To love God with our minds implies understanding His handiwork. In the Doctrine and Covenants, we read that anyone who has looked up into the starry sky, quote, hath seen God moving in His majesty and power, unquote. Those in former times spoke of God revealing himself in two books, the book of Scripture and the book of nature. I believe that the first commandment invites us to read the testimonies of the divine inscribed in both books. Now the word first. In in the one gospel, Jesus states that this is the first commandment. In another gospel, he calls it the first and great commandment. That's important. This priority is crucial. To me, first implies that the love of God must claim precedence as our highest love. Properly, the love of God orders and subordinates all other loves. That that is to say that the first commandment obligates us uh, as believers to to engage in the academic disciplines as disciples. Now the phrase, love of neighbor. Now, let me turn to the second commandment, the love of neighbor. The second commandment calls on us to love our neighbors as ourselves. This, too, has important implications with respect to a gospel ground for education. I believe that the imperative to love our neighbors implies an obligation to understand our neighbors, their culture, history, language, science, and so forth. For how can I love someone as myself whom I do not even understand? I also believe that the second commandment implies a responsibility to understand and care about our neighborhoods, which shape the soul for good or ill. As the critic Kenneth A. Myers has written, quote, fulfilling the commandment or the commands to love God and neighbor requires that we pay careful attention to neighborhoods, that is, every sphere of human life, where God is either glorified or despised, where neighbors are either edified or undermined. Therefore, living as disciples of Christ pertains not just to prayer, evangelism, and Bible study, but also to our enjoyment of literature and music, our use of tools and machines, our eating and drinking, our views on government and economics, and so on. End quote. Now, love of neighbor thus requires thoughtful engagement with the world or with our neighborhoods, including serious reflections 
on the academic disciplines which serve as the repositories of the world's wisdom. Together, the two commandments call us as disciples to seek wisdom in light of our discipleship. All of us who embrace these divine injunctions live under a religious imperative to learn about God and His mighty creations, as well as about our neighbors and our neighborhoods, in which Christian love must be practiced. I also believe that modern revelation makes our duty to learn, as Latter-day Saint Christians, even more explicit and concrete, especially in the revelation in the DNC called the Olive Leaf. The revelation given to John, John, Joseph Smith, known as the Olive Leaf, found in Doctrine and Covenants 88, sets forth an expansive vision of education for Latter-day Saints. According to President jo- Dallin H. Oaks, when he was president of the university, the Olive Leaf, which defined the objectives of the School of the Prophets, still serves as the basic constitution of church education. That's a remarkable statement. Let me briefly describe how this constitutional revelation articulates the how, what, and why of a gospel ground of education. First, how. In the olive leaf, the Lord enjoins his people to diligently seek learning, even by study and also by faith. This counsel, which is repeated three times in the Doctrine and Covenants, describes how Latter-day Saints should approach education. The key commandment as to how we should learn is likely familiar to all of you. We should learn by diligent study and by faith. Note how both study and faith are divinely sanctioned means of learning. I believe in a holistic pursuit of wisdom— which embraces such dichotomies as intellect and spirit, reason and revelation, head and heart. I also believe that we should approach learning diligently. Modern revelation frequently uses the adverb diligently to describe how the saints are to seek and search. I find it telling that the root of diligence or diligent connotes the Latin diligere, meaning to esteem highly favor, to esteem highly, love, choose, take delight in. Diligently thus captures not only the rigor and assiduousness that should attend our study, but also the joy and excitement that should characterize gospel-grounded learning. Now the what— The olive leaf also articulates what should be studied. It sets forth a broadly inclusive curriculum. Early Latter-day Saints were to be, quote, instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine. They were to know of things both in heaven and and in earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, at home and abroad, and the wars and perplexities of nations. What a broad curriculum. (laughs) They were further commanded to seek wisdom out of the best books and to study and learn and become acquainted with languages, tongues, and peoples. To my knowledge, these injunctions have never been revoked or rescinded. Therefore, 
we, just like the early saints, ought to understand the broad domains of human knowledge. For me, this is not only a daunting, but also a thrilling prospect. It invites me to indulge my intellectual curiosity. It is an antidote to intellectual sloth, narrow-mindedness, and self-satisfaction. And it is an injunction to never cease learning and to ever seek to learn from those in every walk of life, not just from those in my narrow area of specialization or expertise, but to learn from everyone and to learn everything. The stunning scope of the Lord's curriculum in the olive leaf lends support to the proposition that the gospel embraces all truth. So wide is the expanse of things that the Lord would have his saints know. This breath may also bespeak the fact that ideas have consequences. The Lord knows that ideas in the academic disciplines can deeply affect our discipleship, for good or evil. Hence, disciples in every generation must be wise as serpents. They must take the measure of the philosophy, science, art, culture, and technology of their age if they are to be prepared in all things to proclaim the gospel. What the age propounds affects how disciples must expound the gospel to their neighbors. Therefore, disciples have a double obligation to the disciplines. Disciples must learn from the disciplines, and disciples bring an important perspective to the disciplines. Now, the, the why of learning. Finally, modern revelation, the olive leaf, describes why believers are to seek learning. It's telos, or purpose. That's the Latin for purpose, telos. Traditionally, two competing reasons are adduced to justify learning, instrumental value and intrinsic value. The Doctrine and Covenants ascribes both instrumental and intrinsic value to learning. The early saints were commanded to seek learning so that they would be prepared in all things to magnify their, their callings as witnesses. That is, they were to seek learning for the sake of the world they were called to serve and to save. This implies learning has this instrumental, is an instrumental good, one that helps disciples act more efficiently in the world. In addition, however, the saints were to seek intelligence to become more like God. To this end, they were taught that the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. This doctrine implies that learning um, truth is an intrinsic good, a good in and of itself, for it is an attribute of the divine nature. I cannot conceive of a more powerful argument for the intrinsic value of learning than this, nor more inspiring a more inspiring incentive to learn all the truth we can, even while in this life. For we have this promise, which I find rather glorious. Whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. 
So intelligence makes us more like God. Obviously, intelligence is not coterminous with the knowledge of academic subjects that we're engaged in as graduate students or faculty. But I suspect that there is some overlap, since truth is knowledge of things as they are, were, are, and, uh, and will be. So, so further, the habit of truth-seeking by study and faith will also rise with us in the resurrection and will aid us in our quest for perfection and eternal life. This is, finally, the true goal of education. The ultimate end of true education is to help us become more like God. As John Milton says in this little pamphlet called Of Education, the end of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parent parents by regaining to know God aright, and out of that knowledge to love him, to imitate him, and to be like him. So I've offered this academic credo regarding the gospel ground for education, a credo founded on the great commandments and on modern revelation. I've focused on our religious obligation to learn. If, however, I were asked to reduce my academic credo to a sentence, I would state it as follows. I believe that as disciples, we have a religious duty to learn the truth, to love the truth, and to live the truth. I have focused almost exclusively on our duty to learn the truth tonight. This, however, is only the beginning of a disciple's duty. It is not enough merely to learn the truth. We must love it. And it is not enough only to love the truth. We must live it. Loving and living the truth constitute higher obligations than learning the truth. But to explore them would clearly require another lecture. So may you found your scholarship on your faith as the basis of your scholarship and education. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Envisioning BYU podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches and classic speeches, as well as BYU Speeches compilations on marriage and love, overcoming adversity, Joseph Smith, Come Follow Me, by study and by faith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.